Give me the flats of dawn with plenty of tailing fish. And the perfect fly rod. Yeah! And get ready for some magic. Awesome Join Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Nice fish. And help make sure that the magic never ends. Visit tarbone.org to find out how you can help. That beer pour goes out to Elon Musk and the entire crew at SpaceX for what was, in my opinion, one of the most exciting launches I have seen since the space program uh, cut the shuttle program or since the government cut the shuttle program. Absolutely phenomenal. Seriously, though. Uh, welcome to Kayak Fishing Radio. I am your host, Charles Levi, also known as Redfish Chuck, joined by the other host, Captain Alex Gorichki, also joined by the man from Atlanta, Georgia, Mr. James Page. Gentlemen, how goes it? Northside represent. You there, yep. Alex? Yep. 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 Can you hear me? Yeah. I can hear you. Are you sure? I'm on earbuds, so I never know how it's gonna go, you know, with the earbuds. It's always it's always sketchy. It's always a little touch and go. Yeah, a little hit or miss sometimes. But uh what a absolutely phenomenal launch we had today here on the Space Coast. And I'm gonna tell you something. I've lived here basically my entire life. Alex has lived here his entire life. Alex's family uh, all has worked one time or another in the space program, including Alex. And it was very refreshing to see the amount of people that poured into Bavard County to watch this thing go up, was it not? Yeah, it was really awesome. Definitely brought back some memories. I don't, I, you know, I would have to agree with you. I, I would say that this is, for me personally, and I've seen every, I've seen just about every shuttle launch there was. I might have missed a couple because I wasn't in town, but just about every one that's gone up I've seen, you know, and, and tons and tons of rockets. And for years now, without having that shuttle going up, it just definitely didn't hold the same mystique. And uh, today it seemed it seemed like it, it nipped at the heels of that mystique a little bit, you know, like it was actually it was neat, man. It was it was a it was a good launch. And it's uh it's a big step when you think of it in terms of being a space dork. Um, you know, it's a big step for them to put that thing in the air. Oh yeah, one step, Huge. To, one step closer to people in there. So pretty much is what it gets. So. Yeah, and uh, for those of you that are not from Florida or have never witnessed a launch in person, 
there's a couple of things that we always get super excited about. A, obviously watching the thing leave the pad and witnessing the raw power that it takes to send something into space. Um, but the rumble that you feel, because you don't just hear it, you can sometimes feel the rumble. Um, in our old house, the, the stuff on the walls used to literally shake when the shuttle went up. Um, like paintings and stuff I had on the walls or pictures I had on the walls would literally shake on the walls. Um, the windows would shake. I mean, it was, it was absolutely incredible. And when the shuttle would come back home, and uh, you get the sonic boom, there was nothing like that. Like, you knew as soon as you heard it exactly what it was. Oh, shuttle's back. And today we got to witness not just one booster landing, but two boosters landing at the Cape and then a third booster landing out in the ocean. And that, to me, is probably one of the most impressive moments of the entire thing. I mean, it's super cool to, to see this massive uh, rocket that required an incredible amount of power to uh, send off the launch pad and watch it slowly take flight. And when I say slowly, <laughs> I don't know about you, Alex, but I sat back there for a second with my fingers crossed like, Oh, make it, make it, make it! Because when it first cleared the when it first cleared the pad, it had that look of it like, wow, it, it is struggling to get it, to get up in the air. And then, uh, yeah, they had, then, of course, it, it. They have a uh, they have I believe it's I believe it's an Atlas heavy um, that they use for shooting big satellites up. And that thing, man, when it's loaded down, dude, it crawls off that that launch pad so slow. You're like, wow, how is that thing even moving? Now, you touched on it a little bit. The, You know, we actually talked a little bit about uh, last week about the solid rocket boosters on the shuttle. When we yeah. were talking about the, uh, the other side of the tuna fishery. Um, I think it was last week, either that or the week before. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, when you think of the solid rocket boosters, 130 foot long, um, those, uh, I think those SpaceX sticks are probably somewhere in that same general vicinity of size. But, you know, when you, when they did the, the, the space shuttle with the solid rocket boosters, those things were done with parachutes. They had a pair of pa- or that it was actually three parachutes that pop out of the nose of it and allow it to settle down into the water, um, and and then they'd recover it. And like I said, we went over last week or the week before. If you listened to it, if you didn't get a chance to hear it, go back and listen to it on the podcast. Uh, we talked about how they, they recovered the um, uh, solid rocket boosters, and that's actually how they found the tuna fishery. So, anyways, to, the first time I actually saw SpaceX do their landings, and, and the reason why, um, we'll do a little quick space geek out on you guys for a minute. Um, the reason why you want to get that booster, that rocket, back, uh, the reason why we recovered 
Now, I worked, actually, what I did for one of my jobs at the Space Center was um, I spray paint on parts of the solid rocket boosters. So every time that solid rocket booster fell into the ocean, filled up with seawater, got drug all the way back here to, to Canaveral, um, and got pulled out of the water, broken apart, the whole thing, I'm, and I'm not talking like, oh, let's just take these couple parts off. I'm talking every nut. Every screw, every bolt, every everything comes out of the the vehicle, or at that point in time, it's not really the vehicle, but um, the rocket uh, gets completely disassembled, down to nothing but pieces of metal and fasteners. That's it. Nothing's connected. Nothing is nothing. Um, and at that point in time, what we, what my job was, we actually basically dealt with corrosion. So we would strip the metal parts down and re-coat them so they didn't corrode. Um, just from being in seawater for the two and a half weeks usually or whatever, a week and a half or whatever it was for it to get back to here, it would actually start corroding and tating and doing all this stuff. So anyways, the, the idea of I want this piece of this vehicle back um, is solely to cut costs and not have to remanufacture every time you launch, remanufacture an entire rocket. So you can refurbish that rocket. You can take that rocket apart. You can make sure its pieces are good. You uh, run just copious amounts of testing and things of that nature to ensure the metal is up to standards. And you can put that rocket back together with maybe some extra pieces and, and, you know, obviously making everything new again by recoding and stuff like that. Put that rocket back together and send that sucker back into space. Whereas if you threw the thing away every time, the cost just keeps going up and up and up and up. And um, the neat thing about SpaceX, and I'm sure everybody's seen it by now, and what Chuck was talking about with the boosters basically landing uh, two of them landed here on, on the cape, on the tip of the cape, uh, on their landing pads. And then another one landed on what they call the drone ship, which is just a big barge that they leave floating in the middle of the ocean. Um, and literally, when I say the middle of the ocean, it's 100-plus miles offshore, just like the boosters were for the, uh, the shuttle. So, really, really neat. If anybody hasn't seen how they land, how SpaceX lands these things, you really got to get on YouTube and search, you know, SpaceX uh, landing. And I guarantee you there's going to be 30,000 videos that pop up. And it is some of the craziest thing in the world. And if you can think about it, they use no parachutes, the slowest thing that I know of. I don't think they use any parachutes. No, there's no parachutes. Yeah. I, I didn't think there was. Because I've never seen it. This thing falls out of the atmosphere, out of space. Because that's no, what, what they use. Hey, what What's crazy, real quick? What's crazy is when when they separate, they actually re-engage and fire back towards Earth. Right. They, they, they shoot, go up they so high. Yeah. They, yeah. They literally. They literally shoot like missiles back towards earth and then once they get in the in the in the right vicinity then they kill the fire and they literally free fall 
I don't even I, I couldn't even tell you how far it is, but today was a beautiful day to watch it because you could see the fire extinguish on both on both uh, boosters, and then as it was falling, I lost one. I couldn't pick up the one booster after the fire went out, but I could see the other one falling, and it literally free falls just as fast as a booster would fall back to earth, and then terminal few, velocity. I would say. Yeah, terminal velocity, and I would say a few, just a few miles above, if if even that, a few miles above the landing zone, they re-engage, they re-fire, and they almost come to a complete stop, like vertical. They almost come to a complete stop and slow themselves down, and when you see the videos on YouTube and stuff, and, and some of the videos that some of the people that work out there took today, you can actually see the legs unfold and it come down to rest and just and just stop. It literally looks like a video game it, or a movie. It doesn't look real. I don't care how many times you see it. When you, when you see this massive white object come falling down out of the sky, and at the very last second, like I said, it, it engages its, its thrusters and slows it down to the point to where it's a controlled, slow landing. It's probably, honest to God, it's probably one of humankind's most incredible discoveries and, and inventions, period. Because it doesn't make sense. Like, none of it makes sense to me. Like, Alex, you know, from watching the shuttles and, and, and the, history, the history there, go ahead. Dude, I legit, the first time I saw that thing land on the drone ship, I legit looked at it, watched it again, and went, that's fake as can be. There's no humanly yeah. possible way we've been able to engineer this stupid rocket literally coming back down like it had just taken off on its ass end, straight back down onto a freaking boat in the middle of the damn ocean. There's no way this is going on. I literally thought it was fake. And still to this day, it boggles my mind. It absolutely boggles my mind. It's absolutely yeah. it's fantastic. It's a great way. I mean, you land that thing right there on the Cape every time, or if you got to do these heavies, you only have one out. I mean, that's great, especially for turnover and getting you know getting more rockets uh, built and going up. It's awesome. Uh, it's it's awesome. Yeah, stuff. It is cool. It's it's it's, it's was, really I, amazing. Take the literally shocking. If you have not seen footage of this thing landing, it's boosters. You've got to, absolutely got to look it up on YouTube and check it out. The, it's amazing that they land it on land, but it, to me it's even more amazing that they can land the damn thing on a barge out in the middle of the freaking ocean <laughs> because you're dealing now you're dealing with the, the rise and fall of the barge itself on the ocean surface and the whole thing. And – there's no second chances. There's no, like, give it a little thrust and let it go up a little bit before it settles back down again. No, when it comes down, it's coming down, and it's coming down with a purpose. And even though they slow it down, when those feet deploy, wherever it touches, that's, that's where it's got to have to stick. So Elon Musk, listen, we all know the guy is a genius. We all know that he is probably one of the most important uh, uh, scientific minds of our generation for sure. You, sir, I know you'll never listen to this podcast, but you, sir, are freaking incredible. 
And everybody out there at SpaceX, congratulations, because we've, we, I know Alex and I both have friends that work out there, and it's just it's, it's mind-blowing. And, and right now, to think about this too, and we'll get off this, we'll talk fishing, but to think about this too, there literally is a Tesla Roadster with a dummy astronaut pilot, so to speak. It's just, it's basically just a mannequin hauling butt through space right now, heading towards Mars to, to just get in the orbit of Mars. And literally a car is just going to orbit Mars forever until a piece of space junk knocks it out of orbit. Like, come on. Come on. That's like science fiction stuff. That's like, this doesn't even make any sense. But I witnessed it. We got to test a rocket. How are we going to test it? Put a car in it. <laughs> well, that's just it. You know, they, were, they wanted to simulate having a payload in it. And Eli's, Elon, Elon's like, uh, let's put a roadster in it. <laughs> Why not? I mean, it's the first, it's the first automobile <laughs> to travel into space. I mean, come on. He's got, he's, got, he's got ads for the rest of his life for Tesla out of this thing. Like, are you kidding me? It, it, survived, oh, it survived a rocket launch and, and, and is on its way to Mars. It could survive driving down the street at 45 miles an hour. Like, oh, it's so crazy. So crazy. Anyway, I digress. Sorry about that. Us, us folks here on the Space Coast, we get a little geeked out over rocket launches and shuttle launches and stuff. And, and even though we see so many of them and sometimes – not the, not the shuttle launches. The shuttle launches, to me, were never routine, but all the rocket launches, if you stopped and paid attention to everyone that went up here, literally there's probably a, a good hundred a year that go up. Um, you know, you, you drive yourself crazy trying to see them all. But uh, everybody who, who has grown up here and lived here during the shuttle program, I, I know all of you are feeling the same way that Alex and I are feeling right now, just – you gotta feel you gotta feel proud in one sense to live in the same county in which this is happening, and then you just gotta you just gotta have that wow feeling again because we're we're really close to putting people on that thing and sending people back up into space, and once we start doing that, the crowds will show back up here in Bavard County even bigger than you saw today, and it's a it's a, it helps us like you would never believe. The, the, the amount of money that comes into Bavard County for a, a big launch is just because we don't have the Daytona 500 here. We don't have big sporting events here. So we don't really have that draw that brings in that big total of money. And sometimes it, you know, sometimes it, it can be annoying ish because of the traffic. But those of us that have lived here forever know to stay home <laughs> and walk out front and watch it. And then you don't have to worry about sitting in traffic. It took my buddy Doug an hour and 20 minutes to drive home from his job out at Lockheed Martin out on the Space Center to Port St. John. An hour and 20 minutes for him to drive home, which he didn't complain about a bit. Because, again, it, it's reminiscent of the, of the uh, 90s and, and, or late 80s or, or early 80s, 90s, and then into the 2000s where we watched the shuttle go up. But so anyways – um, cool. Excellent. That was awesome. Definitely the highlight of my day. Probably honestly I've the act- highlight of my year so far. I've actually got I've actually got Starman. Oh, that's is that the Earth or the Moon? Oh, that's Earth. 
I've got Starman on my news feed right now. He's live in his Tesla. <laughs> Looking, looking like he's a couple hundred miles away from home. And he's dude, just tell crazy. me that's not awesome. It's awesome, dude. The earth is right behind him. It is classic. Starman is back. So he is straight go, go on, uh, Hey, share that or put post. Is it on your page? Share it on your page and people can go and check it out who are listening. Don't, I'll put it on. I'm going to shoot it over to uh, – um, I'm going to share it to – Kayak Fishing Radio's uh, Facebook page. Yeah. Shared. Check out Starman as he floats in front of the <laughs> earth. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> what are we going to do? It We're really going to send a car into space. <laughs> no, it's all. It, it's, I, like Chuck said, uh, not only did I work out there, but uh, my dad's retired from out there. My aunt's still out there. Uh of my generation, my brother-in-law, my wife, me, um, my grand, both my grandparents, my grandma and my grandpa retired from out there at the Cape. And, uh, it's, it's got a long history with those of us that live here and more than just, Oh, that's neat. And it's, it does, uh, today was the first time in a while that I went in a long time, I should say, because even the last, maybe the last shuttle launches, because it was going away, so everybody was interested. But, um, uh, but to to be able to kind of kick back and and soak in that, literally the eyes of the world are on our little our little spot on this on this earth. The eyes of the world are watching what's going on here, and the people that live here have a big hand in in what ended up, you know, transpiring, good or bad. So it's, you know, it's, shoot, my grandfather, when he got laid off from the Apollo program, uh, he was bridge tending it all over Canal, you know, until he got picked back up with another, with the, the next program, which was Space Lab, I think. I'm, I can't remember exactly what came after Apollo. But, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, a, it's got a long, rich history here, and it's, I don't know. It's neat to see, and I kind of always had a feeling it'd take about ten years from the end of shuttle for it to get kicked off again. And here we are at about ten years from, and uh, stuff's really, really booting up. Not only is that going on, but we should be seeing. I believe they've already done test fires of engines and some other stuff. I would venture to say within the next year or so, we're going to see the actual NASA new vehicle um fly from the space coast which will be really really exciting i got a couple people actually my aunt's working on that program right now um you know that's our next uh, government funded space program it's uh space is an interesting thing yeah we don't want to stick on it too long we'll talk about it forever but it's uh yeah i don't know anyways uh yeah, it is neat. It's amazing, actually, and it, and it's it's one of those things. As Alex said, it just it's those who don't live here locally probably won't understand how excited it is, how exciting we how excited we are to see it again. But anyhow, uh, so what's going on? They, fishing all, they always Fish. they always said us locals were a little bit off because of the rocket fuel fumes. I don't doubt it. Kids of kids of Cape Apes were always the craziest. <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> it is true. 
I don't know what the parents got into out there, but whatever it was, uh, they definitely turned out some very interesting children. Um, so what's, what's exciting right now? Of course, what's exciting right now? It's all over social media. Um, black drum, right? The black drum have schooled up. They are, they are literally, from what I understand, everywhere. I say that because I haven't personally been out to get them, but I know they're there. It's the time of year where they tend to stack up and um, you can find schools of fish anywhere from five or 10 fish up to a few hundred possibly. Um, But the question that I see asked the most is a, where are they? And B, what are you using? What are, where are they and what are you using? And, uh, I'll I'll go through a real quick little thing, and then uh, Alex, feel free to interject, or um, I'll go to you when I'm done. Either way, and uh, you know we'll kind of give you our two cents on the topic, and then we're also going to discuss pompano because I know that the pompano are thicker than thieves right now, and uh, a buddy who went two days ago and. Uh, got his limit in about 30 minutes. So anyhow, black drum. So where are they? They are on the quote-unquote flats, grass flats, um, sandy bottom really is honestly where you're more than likely going to find most of them on top of sand or soft, soft bottom. It's not hard to locate them if you're in the proper area because typically with black drum, um, unlike redfish, where redfish, when they tail, they tend to uh, tip the tail up in the air, wiggle it around for a few seconds and drop it, and then they move and pick it up and drop it, or they spin around in a circle, pick it up and drop it. I have watched black drum lift the tail up in the air and literally not move for a minute and a half, not even wiggle the tail, just the tail sticking up in the air, no explanation as to really what all they're doing besides stealing around with their little barbels. Um, but so, yeah, if you, if you Dude, fell early, asleep while I was eating, <laughs> it's what it looks like, doesn't it? It does. Uh, Guaranteed. but if you get out early, yeah, more than likely, if you get up early and, uh, get out before the afternoon breeze picks up and you get yourself out on a flat, nice and quiet flat, not a lot going on. And just sit still and kind of and kind of watch. You all right? What are you doing? Oh, um, sorry. Uh, um, if you just kind of watch, sit back and watch, you'll see these tails from a mile away. Because again, there's usually a group of fish that are in anywhere from a 15 to 20 fish group or up to a few hundred. And it's not hard to see a big black drum tail stick up out of the water. And the thing that's interesting about a black drum is I think per their size, they have one of the larger tails in, of, of most of the fish that you'll find tailing in the, in the Indian River, Mosquito Lagoon, uh, West Coast, wherever you are, um, for their size. And so they do definitely stand out as like a sore thumb. Um, I tend to find higher concentrations of these fish in waters that, Somewhat, uh, somewhat covers their whole body profile until they tip their nose down. Meaning, if you're catching five-pound fish, five to ten-pound fish, you can find those fish in a foot of water, right? No problem. 
usually the, the hump on their back, once they start to develop that hump on their back, you'll, you'll see that sometimes sticking out of the water as they're kind of cruising along or whatever. Um, the bigger ones, obviously a little bit deeper water, but still shallow enough for them to dip their nose and, and pick that tail up. Black drum are probably one of the easiest fish to get to eat bait. By bait, I mean natural bait. I'm going to attack this topic from a fly fisherman's perspective, and I'll let Alex handle the, the, uh, the, the conventional side, if that's cool. You good with that? I don't know where it went. Did you pause me? Did you just mute me? He dropped off. He'll be back. Anyway, I said fly fishing, James, and so he, he probably flipped out. <laughs> What's that? I said fly fishing, so he probably dipped out on me for saying fly fishing. Who, Alex? Yeah. Yeah, he probably took a break. Yeah, now he's back. He's back. Uh, let me unmute him. Anyway, um, I went. I went to I unmute saying, you, and I went to unmute you, and I hung. I hung up on the radio show. Sorry about that, folks. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. But anyway. Yes, that's perfectly so, fine. You can handle the fly and I'll handle the uh very expensive conventional. uh conventional. Very expensive. Very very Make sure expensive. to get out of pen, right, so. pen and a pad of paper. <laughs> anyway, fly fishing for black drum. So here's the deal. Can you catch a black drum on a five weight? Sure. Is it gonna be fun? For the first probably five minutes, it'll be fun. And then when if the, if the black drum has any size to it and it decides to kind of put the brakes on and lay on the bottom, you're going to have a, a bit of a time trying to pull on a fish with a five weight that basically is like pulling a, a, a sunken tire across the bottom. Um, I recommend that you target a black drum with either a seven, eight, or even a nine weight fly rod, depending upon the size of the black drum, uh, for the reason that the fight will be much faster, the fish can be revived and set free with little to no stress. Um, plus two, I always find that you get a much better hook set with a little bit of a heavier weight fly rod um, than you will on, on a, like a five weight or something. I'm not saying that you can't drive the hook home with a five weight. I'm just saying that it probably would behoove you just to go ahead and, you know, step, step up the game a little bit and, and try and tackle them on something a little bit more substantial. Um, floating line is fine. There's no reason whatsoever to use anything other than a floating line in any area that you're going to find any fish that's tailing. Here is the only time that I typically run a fluorocarbon leader over a monofilament leader. And I'm going to explain to you why. I'm not a big fan of heavy lead dumbbell eyes. I don't like the fact that if I see a squirrel hopping from tree to tree along the shoreline and take a peek over at it uh, and forget that I'm casting a heavy weighted fly um, if that if that heavy lead comes back and smashes my fly rod, there's a good possibility it's going to blow up on the very next hook set. So I try to stay away from using super heavy uh, flies and big dumbbell eyes on my flies if I if I don't need to, 
The only reason why you would for black drum is because of the, the, the mechanics of the way in which they feed. They, you know, they use their barbels to locate things on the, on the bottom. Um, you want to get that fly as close to the bottom as possible and move it ever so slowly. Actually, truth be told, Captain Alex uh, explained to me exactly what I needed to do to make it happen. And I, every time I've ever come across a black drum and I throw in a fly at it, I can almost hear him in the back of my head telling me to slow down, little little strip, little strip, little bump, little bump, little bump, little bump. So, flies, what do you feed a black drum? Well, black drum typically are crustacean eaters. They do eat minnows and, and the like from time to time. So they, they, I have caught them on a bait fish pattern before. Um, however... Uh, there's nothing that can compare to any shrimpy, crabby-looking fly that is small, I would say the size of a quarter uh, in, in diameter and, and smaller, uh, black and purple, black, black and gold, black and whatever. Just dark colors seem to work better for them for some reason. I've caught plenty of black drum on um, typical redfish flies. I've thrown uh, a tan-colored quan into the middle of a, a pack of tailing redfish only to drag a black drum out of the school, which, whatever, not a bad thing. I don't, I don't hate them for it because I do like catching black drum. They're awesome. Uh, Julio is joining us in the chat room. What's going on, buddy? Um, so anyhow, uh, yeah, so... Small black uh, clousers would work well. Um, small black and purple quans, small uh, kung fu crabs, um, anything that's crustacean y looking, small black and purple. Hooks, hook size, I mean, that's up to you. I've caught them on everything from a little size four up to a 1 0 or 2 0. Um, I don't think it really much makes a difference. There are a few hooks, though, that I do prefer um, for black drum over other hooks, and uh, one of them is a grip hook from the company Grip Hooks. You can find them at griphooks.com. It's the 41379B as in boy, N as in November, uh, number four and number two size hook. It's a uh, extra heavy Forged black nickel hook, chemically sharpened, um, but it has a really cool, like almost downturned point on the hook. So if you were to run it with a set, let's say, of, of decent sized bead chain eyes, maybe mediums or smalls, uh, well, medium bead chain eyes, um, when it hits the bottom, it rides hook point pointing downward. Um, but the body of the of the fly, the tail of the fly, sticking upwards a little bit. So, I don't know. I'm not a black drum. I don't know what it's like to feed like a black drum, but I can only imagine that if you're a black drum using your barbels going across the bottom, trying to find something to eat, and there's something that sticks up just a little higher than the surrounding area and tickles your barbels, you're probably going to try and eat it. Um, and the downward point on this hook, the way that it the way that it rides, when you go to strip set that thing, it always finds home. I've never had, I've never once lost a fish 
after the strip set with one of those hooks. Not one time. And I, I can't say that for a lot of other hooks that I've used with the crustacean style flies. But uh, typical leader setup, I'm running 30 to 25 to 20 down to either 12 or 15 pound uh, tippet. Um, I tie those with a uni uni knot. I don't do anything different. Um, I know nail knots work great. Uh, there's a bunch of different knots. Lefty's got a knot that he that he developed that works really good for uh, building leaders as well. But I've never had a problem with the uni uni ever coming apart. I've never had it break. Um, so I stick with what I know with that. I don't need you don't need to go big on your tippet. You can go to 12. You can go to 15. They're not going to break you off on structure if you're fishing on them. If you're fishing for them on the flats, uh, they're not going to wear through it with their teeth. Um, because honestly, their lips are so uh, their lips are so fat that typically when you when you do stick them, um, you're well aware you're well away from crushers and everything else in their mouth that's going to uh, uh, cause you to possibly get some some rub offs or break offs or or uh, shredded leaders. But you know, presentation's key. They're not the smartest fish in the world, so they're not nearly as line shy as say a redfish is. Um, if you pick up and drop and your cast is off, pick up and drop again. Like, you don't need to be super stealthy around them. Uh, we, we, typically when we find them, Alex and I find them, we're laughing, we're joking. He's cracking on me because I'm not catching him. Meanwhile, he's doing what he's about to tell you that he does. And then I find my way and catch a few or whatever. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, they're just uh, big dopey fish that like to eat small things. So um, there's days where you may have to downsize your fly. There's days where you might start off with a with a uh, a crab pattern that might be somewhere in the two inch to three inch long range. You might want to bring a pair of scissors and have them with you in your backpack if you wade or on your kayak or um, on your paddleboard. This way here, you can trim that fly down to a smaller size somewhat matching whatever it is they're eating. They are notorious for eating tiny snails out of the grass or off the sand bottom. So um, if they're eating snails, it's best to throw something small that is black or dark in color that somewhat resembles a snail. But then again, they're a crustacean feeder, so they're never going to pass up the opportunity to eat a shrimp. And with that, Alex, take it away. Well, no, you got, um, there is something I can actually add to the, to the fly fishery. Just a little something. Cool. A little something, something I learned from somebody. And it's that a small rattle in a fly, that any fly that you have described, uh, that little tick that you can get from some of the glass, you know, the glass rattles. Um, yep. Yeah. That right there uh, mimics the tick, uh, the the click that a shrimp makes, and um, yeah, it has a tendency to help. That kind of that kind of I guess will bring me into my first part of of kind of explaining you know black drum in my in my view and my eyes, and that's uh, the with with black drum you have uh, oh killers on the loose. Um, oh, Marley <laughs> Killer. Killer's on the loose. Um, 
you know, you have a pretty interesting fish in black drum, and, and, it's, and it's probably one of the main reasons why um, they lend themselves to a uh, a great fly fishing challenge, basically. Uh, and it's and and their their feeding patterns and and what they eat is is a big part of that. Uh, one reason they're great for fly fishing is because they're dumb as a brick of rocks, or a block or, or a bag of rocks, and you can cast on those fish until you basically beat it in the head about 25 times, and then it might get mad at you. Um, so they have a tendency to be very forgiving um, in the casting department, which makes them great for fly rod fishing because, naturally, you're going to take about 25 casts to get the right one in there, typically. Um, so the black drum is an interesting fish, cousin of the redfish, and also cousin of the sea trout because they're all part of the drum family. But uh, where it differs from the redfish is a pretty stark contrast. Um, and if you look at the, the mechanics of the mouth of a black drum, um, in the mouth of a redfish, for that matter, they're roughly the same. Uh, it's an underslung mouth down at the bottom. Black drum has the barbels that Chuck was talking about, which is the chin whiskers, um, that are really pronounced. Uh, and very few, you know, uh, catfishes have those things and stuff like that. There's a right down on the very bottom of their chin and um, and are really pronounced. And this black drum, unlike the redfish, which up until all of its, through its entire size, through its entire life cycle, is willing to uh, chase baits, uh, actual fin fish, you know, be it mullet, pinfish, pogie, whatever it might be, as they get bigger or smaller. Uh, black drum are almost exclusively, 100% crustacean feeders. Almost exclusively. When they're smaller, under 10 pounds, under 8 pounds, somewhere in there, um, they are a little bit more adventurous in their diet, meaning they will, and I've seen them, physically chase and push mullet and hit mullet like a redfish. Um, smaller ones, like I said, though. Once they get larger, anywhere over about that 8, 10-pound range, their diet goes virtually exclusively thin fit, or uh, uh, crustaceans. Um, there are exceptions, being the big giant ones you find off the beach that literally eat anything you put in front of them for some reason. Uh, but for the most part, the ones you're going to find tailing in the lagoon are going to be 100% crustacean eaters. So your Slayer Inc. SST doesn't work all that well. However, if you swap over to something that's maybe the, the uh, SSB, which is more is the jerk bait, which is almost more snappy and poppy. You can pop it across the bottom like a shrimp. Um, even add a little procure on that, and that's a way to get these fish to feed on artificials. Anything that looks like a shrimp um, is going to get a chance to get hit from them. Anything you dump a bunch of procure on, they're probably going to take a sniff at it, but that's not really artificial fish. Um, it's a challenging fish to fly fish for or artificial fish for, because of a few reasons, um, one being they're virtually blind. So that fish, if you are outside of the strike zone, if you're outside of its little world right in front of its face, and if it's down in the mud with its tail up, he's puffing the bottom, that world gets even smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, 
If it's not in that little tiny spot right in front of its face, he's not going to want anything to do with it because he's not even going to see it. He's not going to know it's there, particularly when you're talking about artificials because they don't have the other added uh, factor of scent. And scent is another way that that fish feeds and the way that fish finds its food. Um, not as much do they use the vibration and, and things of that nature um, like a more open water feeding fish would uh, to pick up, you know, schools of bait fish and things like that. They don't use that lateral line to the same extent that a snook would as he's sitting there in the current uh, feeling for vibrations as, as bait comes pouring by them. Um, they're utilizing, when they're utilizing their feel or their, or their sense of vibration or, or sense of, of, of awareness around them, which it comes from the lateral line, um, they're not using the lateral line as much. They're using those chin whiskers. And they'll actually jam those things down into the bottom and feel around, and, and they can pick up the uh, vibrations and the heartbeat. I mean, they can literally find shrimp and crabs and clams uh, just by jabbing those little chin whiskers down into the thing. Um, the biggest, uh, the biggest of all of the things that they use for their feeding purposes is scent. Um, scent gets them every time. A lot of people will swear by putting some some dead shrimp on the deck of their boat or the deck of their kayak and wait until they turn pink and smell horrid and then throw them out for them. I don't believe in that. I believe that catches more catfish than anything. But the scent of fresh shrimp in the water, the scent of fresh cut quarter of a crab or half of a crab in the water, the scent of fresh sand fleas in the water are all ways to almost guarantee that that fish that you see in front of you is going to take a hit. And when I take, say guarantee that that fish in front of you is going to take a hit, when you pull up on a school of redfish, unlike with the fly rod where you might throw and hope, or with the artificial where you might throw and hope, when you pull up on a school or a group or even one single black drum laying there or a couple black drum laying there that you see, and you put a shrimp in front of it, or you put a piece of crab in front of it, 99.9999999% of the time, you're going to come tight on that fish. And it's going to come tight as soon as he smells it. He's going to go straight to it, going to nose down on it, and swim off. So, real simple. There's really not much that you need for uh, uh, tackle-wise. Your standard river tackle, uh, convention, or, uh, you know, non-fly. Uh, standard spend and you know, 10-pound test or somewhere in there, uh, 10 to 15-pound class rod, uh, little leader. There is no teeth on the black drum, um, even less so than a redfish. Most people don't think of a redfish as a toothy fish, but they do have some front teeth. Uh, they're grasping teeth. They don't really cut. They can kind of poke into you and, and rip, but they don't really cut. Um, black drum don't even have those. They're basically gummed except for their crushers in the back of their throat, i.e. because they don't have to worry about catching and grasping thin fish that you use that type of tooth for. They're worried about sucking a shrimp or sucking a crab back into the back of their throat and crushing it. Um, so 
any leader really works, 20-pound, 30-pound, whatever you got. They aren't leader shy. Like I said, they're almost blind. Um, super easy to catch. Chuck went over pretty good on how to locate them. You know, best thing to do is look for schools. As we come into spring, they actually spawn. Um, so redfish spawn in the late summer, early fall. Black drum spawn in the late winter, early spring. Um, and I've actually had an opportunity to, to catch them in a couple different times when they've been doing that spawning activity. A couple times back in the day out of the no motor zone, which was pretty interesting because they would swim up and down the outside bars in these giant schools of like 200, 300 fish and um, just swim back and forth drumming. As the sun was setting and the moon was rising, those big moons of the of the late uh, winter and early fall, they swim back and forth, drumming, boom, 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 boom. And uh, meanwhile, fish here, fish there are pulling off and, and feeding up onto the flat. Um, so that time frame of right now, late winter, early spring, is when you have the spawning activity, thus the schools get the thickest, Thus, this is a great time of the year to go after them. Um, best thing to look for is pushes, tails, wakes, um, anything of that nature. Redfish or uh, black drum are extremely forgiving, unlike redfish. So if you do blow out a school, if you stop and wait and don't move and watch the school, watch where they go and watch what they do, you can let them relax out for 20 or 30 minutes and actually go right back at that school of fish. Or if you overfish a school of fish, maybe you get a couple too many out of it. If you pull off of them, wait a little while, you can go back at them and tend to, tend to get them to fire back up. Um, super fun fish. One thing I will notice, and I don't think Chuck said anything about it, one thing I have noticed in my, in my years of messing with black drum um, is that they thoroughly hate any kind of wind. They thoroughly hate it. So if it's blowing, the tails aren't coming up. They'll be there. They'll just be on the bottom sulking and angry. Um, they won't be doing their happy drum thing of cruising around and tailing and feeding. Uh, they'll be looking to kind of lay low. And I think it has to do with the fact that they're just so broad and so dopey when they, they tail. It's harder for them to keep their nose down into the right spot when that wind's blowing and the chop's going. That's what I equate it to. I'm not sure if that's exactly why. But, um, yeah, black drums are fun. Yeah, they taste I agree. I yeah, they they are actually really delicious. One of my favorite eating fish out of the river. Um, I agree. No, uh, there's been times before where I've I've come up on a big school of them, and they're happy, tailing, they're pushing around, they're drumming to each other, everything's good, and then like you say, just just enough breeze picks up to it makes them feel uncomfortable, and they literally will all drop their tails and not move. And then all of a sudden the wind dies down, even for just a brief moment. If it's if they get a couple of, a couple maybe a minute or so of a reprieve from the from the wind, um, the tails will pop right back up again. And as Alex had mentioned, they are forgiving. If you do spook them, they're not typically like a redfish that'll blow off and and you know they swim to China. Um, these fish will will spook up. They'll they'll push up just like a, a redfish will but they'll only move a few hundred feet if that. And given the opportunity to, you know, readjust to their surroundings, 
they're right back on the tail, right back on the feed a very short time afterwards. So, very good. Yeah, no, black drum, awesome. So, the other species we're going to speak about a little bit is Pompano. And one of the interesting things that I have found over the years, especially here, is in, in the Indian River mainly. I've seen some in the lagoon, but mainly in the Indian River. Um, if you find a school of black drum and the water's clean enough to where you can actually physically see the fish, if you look real carefully, you will sometimes find pompano hiding amongst the black drum in the river. And they'll, because they, they both eat the same thing. They're both looking for the same thing. And uh, I'm not sure exactly why or how they, the, the two species meet up and come together or why they kind of accept each other in each other's space. But um, more times than I can remember, I've, I've seen pompano in, mixed in with black drum. Um, I've never personally caught a pompano on fly. I've caught pompano on just about everything else you could ever imagine on spin tackle, but I've never caught a pompano on a fly rod. And it is a species in which I liked it. I would love to catch on fly. And I think that given enough time fishing these black drum schools, it, it should work pretty well. Um, I, I should eventually pull one just by, by numbers, but keep your eyes peeled. Whenever you're out there fishing those black drum, you might get lucky and find some pompano mixed in. I'm not going to discuss pompano fishing. I'm going to leave that to Alex because there's people on this planet that just know a specific species, and Alex is one of those guys that knows the pompano real well. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, yeah, I've caught them on just about everything, but typically it's a surf it's a surf rig and a cooler full of beer and some dead sand fleas. So... Alex will probably give you some way cooler tips than what I can give you on, on pompano fishing. So have at it, sir. You know, pomps are, uh, they're a tricky one, though. They have, uh, they have an interesting life and, and they're a hard one to pin down. You know, surprisingly enough, there's more of them in the lagoons than I think people understand. Uh, for a long time, back when the netters used to run the river, that was one of the main things that they netted out of the lagoon, um, particularly around the Spoil Islands at night. Uh, they run the nets, they run the gill nets, and net the crap out of them. But, you know, they come in and out of the lagoon via, obviously, Ponce Inlet, Sebastian, and Port Canaveral, and areas like that. But, you know, there's, there's, I guess, I guess you could come up, come away with three kind of distinct areas where you could potentially run into that fish or target that fish. Um, one being in the lagoons uh, proper. Uh, two being in the inlets, port passes, places like that, uh, where they're transitioning from in the ocean to in the lagoon or vice versa. And then obviously on the beach, uh, like Chuck was saying, you know, and that, that beach fishing's it, it's, I like to say it's simple, but it's not, you know, to be a successful beach fisherman, you got to be able to, to read the water and understand where troughs are and understand where sandbars are 
um, you know, understanding a wave takes shallow water to break, and then if it backs off and stops breaking, it's probably deep water after that shallow water. Um, and then areas where, where the tide is being funneled to an outlet from the beach, where it's speeding it up or, or allowing more flow. Um, those are all good areas. Pompano are a schooling fish. So typically if you see and or catch one, there's going to be more around. Whether or not you can get the rest of them to eat or is, is a different story, but you can. Um, so in the ocean, like Chuck said, uh, you know, some sand fleas, a cooler of beer, and your sand spikes and hanging out, it's a great way to get them. It's the most relaxing way to get them. You can also fish the beach a little different. tends to work better at higher tides because the fish push closer in instead of being on the outside bars. Um, and you can fish an artificial lure that, that is going to kind of stay consistent through the whole what I'm talking about. Um, and that's the docks or any docks is actually is, is a, a name brand. Um, any brand, Goofy Jig or Banana Jig is what they're called. And a Banana Jig or a Goofy Jig is basically a long shank J-hook with a whole bunch of lead piled onto the shank of the hook to make it look like a banana or a torpedo, but just hook and lead, usually painted bright colors. And there's a reason for that. For some reason, those pompanos love bright colors, super bright. Chartreuses, pinks, uh, bright fluorescent oranges. Um, white, of course, is always a good color. Um, colors like that, oddly, even though they feed, like Chuck was saying, you, you can find pompano in schools of black drum. You can find them. One of the most common places that they're found is in schools of large mullet. Not little finger mullet, but big, big, the big black mullet, the big striped mullet. Um, you can find them in those schools. And unlike the black drum, which is a dark, um, a dark, uh, a dark fly, so you have the contrast um, in in that bottom, so they can see something moving across. The pompano wants something very bright. They have extremely good eyesight. If the water's too dirty, you're probably not going to find them. Um, it, they want to have a little bit of clean water. They want to see what they're going after. Um, like I said, that goofy jig and pink chartreuse, da-da-da-da-da. Um, one thing that, like I said, uh, or what I was talking about earlier about the guys that used to net, uh, that a lot of people don't really put into, um, into action, I should say, uh, is your ability to locate outside bars, um, any kind of sandbar really, uh, where it tapers off into deeper water, and, and we're talking the lagoon fish now, not the ocean fish, um, and then also the spoil islands, the edges of the spoil islands. Um, those are places that you could actually go and, and try to target that fish as opposed to it just being a random bycatch. Um, those are probably going to be your best areas. And now the in-between is a little different. Um, you do get fish that move in and out of, um, out of Sebastian Inlet and Ponce Inlet, uh, and they usually move through those inlets a little bit fast, probably because the water's moving so quick. They kind of just move through. You don't really hear about good prolonged 
um, pompano bite in Sebastian or Ponce in the inlet proper, outside of it or maybe inside of it on the sandbars, yes, but not in the inlet proper. Um, whereas here at Port Canaveral, it is pretty well known, um, and I've been fishing them since I was a little kid, uh, that Port Canaveral has a tendency to hold some pompanos in it uh, during the colder months, during the winter, when they should be traversing from lagoon to ocean or ocean to lagoon. Um, those are a little tougher to catch. The Port Canaveral pompanos are usually very deep, anywhere from 25 to 45, 50 foot of water deep. Um, and you're fishing, uh, the goofy jigs work well. Sometimes tip it with shrimp or clam is a great thing to tip it with. Uh, what I like to buy is not actual clams that you have to crack, but the large river clam that you buy sealed up at the um, bait shop that you have to cut into pieces works really great to strip out. It's usually a bit hardier, a bit thicker. Um, and you can strip that out and you can put that on your goofy jig. Uh, and you can work around structure. In those deeper water situations, in that scenario, and you can also find them in the lagoons on the bridges, typically south, south of Sebastian. So Wabasso Bridge, Causeway, the causeways as you go down by Fort Pierce and down to Stewart. You can find them on those causeways also. Um, in those scenarios, you know, you're fishing that deep uh, fish in, uh, in, in deep water, and you're wanting to fish right around or very close to or underneath structure. Um, but not like with a, a uh, um, sheep's head where you're fishing right up against the thing, holding it onto the structure as much as possible, but just around the area of the structure because those fish school around structure. And, and actually, if you ever have a chance to go to somewhere where they have big, giant aquariums, chances are they're going to have pompano in one of them. And if they don't have pompano, they're going to have pomfrets, which are the ones with the long fins with the little stripes down the sides which are about the same dang thing, or palmettos, I meant. Um, and those fish, if you look at them, they almost have to be kept in circular tanks because they like to swim in a circle, and they school, and they like to orientate to something. So if you can imagine a set of pilings under the water, and those fish are doing donuts around those pilings like a tornado. So as you're putting your jig around, if you're just hanging it right next to the piling, they're probably not going to notice it. So you're wanting to pop that thing kind of on the side. The, the, the toughest thing and about the only thing that I can really leave you with, uh, with the pompanos, um, especially on the, on the artificial side, using those goofy jigs. Um, you can also use crappie jigs as a stand-in. They work really well. You can tandem rig those, and they work extremely well. Um, still tipping it with some, some clam is um, you're going to want to let that, that artificial, that bait, make its way to the bottom. Now, even though those fish might be swimming in circles around that, that thing, they're still, they're a bottom-feeding fish. They have a mouth that is on the bottom. You don't go casting a popper at a permit, you know, when you're fly fishing. You don't cast a topwater plug at a permit. Permit and a pompano are the same thing. One's just supersized. You know, you don't cast a topwater plug at a pompano because he'd have no way in heck to get his little tiny face up above the water to actually eat the thing. So what you want that, that goofy jig to do is sink all the way to the bottom, 
maintain contact with the bottom, meaning you're going to have to reel relatively slow and pop, almost like you'd be popping if you're trying to unsnag your, uh, um, your lure out of a tree. Just a short, quick with the wrist pop, and that little thing pops up off the bottom and it settles right back down. Pops up and settles right back down. And that's a, that gets their attention, brings them over, and they'll pick it up and do their thing. Um, they're an interesting fish, man. It's a, it's a tough fish to, uh, to really pin down and try to consistently uh, catch um, other than surf fishing. They're a pretty consistent surf fishing catch when they're in. Um, even if you're just kind of hanging out, you're probably going to get one or two if they're around. Um, but to consistently go out and, and through the year target that species, it's a tough one. They seem to really like water that's in the, you know, 62 to 63 degree up to about the 70, 72 degree range um, is there seems to be their favored temperature. Um, which is about what we're at right now, all over the beach, all in the port, all in the lagoon. Um, so you do have definitely some really good potential. Downside of the lagoon fishing these days is a lot of it's really brown right now. And unfortunately, I really don't expect you to have a very quality time trying to find pompanos uh, in super brown, dirty water. Like I said, sharp eyesight, they want a little bit cleaner water. Um, those goofy jigs... Chuck, remember when we were at uh, Jim Ross's house? I probably lost him. He's doing something. Anyways. Uh, I'm back. To... Sorry. I, was, oh. I muted myself because I was in the middle of eating a slice of pizza, and I didn't want to be, like, mowing down on pizza while you are talking. That sounds good. I had, I had some slow cooker... Uh, pork tenderloin, shredded pork tenderloin, uh, soft tacos. It was really good. Really, really good. But anyways, when we went to uh, a local, well-known local captain, actually it wasn't his house, it was his rod maker's house, Durwood Roberts of Adventurous Rods. Um, that's somebody we could have on the show. Um, yeah, we need to get Durwood on the he, show. Yeah, see if he doesn't have maybe a memory stick sitting around collecting a little dust that he wouldn't might mind giving away to one of our guests. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, we went over there to check out a series of rods, the memory sticks, uh, that Derwood Roberts is building for Jim Ross, uh, who's a local captain. He's pretty well-known, very well-known, actually. Um, and we were at his house, at Derwood's house, and he lives on a canal, um, just any random canal. Actually, it's right up the way from where I live. Uh, but it is truly just any random saltwater canal. Uh, and he, they had a whole laundry list of these uh, uh, rods set up with different reels, um, different lures, so we could check out the action and the casting and, and how they work those lures by throwing them off the dock. And, you know, everybody was kind of throwing, kind of throwing, kind of throwing, and I noticed that nobody had caught the fish. And these were all captains and guides or, or other people that are supposed to be, you know, fishing, uh, you know, fishing, uh, quality fishing people. And um, I noticed that nobody had caught a fish, and I got to thinking. I went over and looked at those lures, and I said, you know what? Of all the lures that are tied on, Jim's, Jim Ross is sponsored by Rapala, so he had every, every type of Rapala you've ever seen tied onto a, uh, onto a rod. 
Um, of all those selections, some soft plastics, top waters, jerk, you know, this, that, the other, uh, you know, soft plastic jerk baits and paddle tails. So they, they literally had the spread, the full spread. Um, of all those things, there was one little tiny rod that was an ultralight that had a goofy jig on it. And I picked up that goofy jig and within two casts had a fish. All those lures hit the water. Never even got a look, never got a hit, never nothing. Within two casts, had a fish on that goofy jig, doing exactly how I told you. Letting it sink, hit the bottom, finding contact with the bottom, pop, let it settle, pop, let it settle, pop, let it settle. Instantly, the first cast I got hit, I knew it was on after that. Second cast, I pull up a little dink trout. Now, a little dink trout isn't much, but when you have 20 guys there that have all thrown every lure known to man into the water and haven't even gotten a sniff, and you walk, you know, you, you pull a, a dink, you know, 13-inch trout up on the dock, you know, you pull a little hero status right then and there. So <laughs> the goofy jigs are not, are not, I repeat, just for pompano. You will catch all kinds of fish on them, from redfish to sea trout to whitings, to all kinds of stuff. And if you take that that goofy jig from the beach and bring it to the lagoon on the sandbars, on the drop-offs and things like that, it can really work out well for you. And, you know, I almost bet if I took a goofy jig and I painted the thing, uh, grabbed a black Sharpie, Sharpie that thing up black, stuff it out in front of a black drum, he'd pop that thing. He'd probably eat it as a oh, bright, yeah. bright color. Goofy jigs. Yeah. Goofy jigs. Well, there you go. There's a breakdown of two different species that are uh, abundant right now this time of year and a little bit of information on both of those. Um, there's something that – oh, here it is. So real quick, um, I know I was going to mention it last show and I forgot, um, but – I'm going to go ahead and mention it again. Uh, here locally, we have a SUP and kayak fishing tournament coming up in uh, March 10th from 6 a.m. till noon. Uh, that is being held by the Kayak and SUP Fishing Tourney uh, Instagram page. <clears throat> It's going to be it's sponsored. It's called Beach and Boards. It's part of the Beach and Boards Fest presented by Ron Jones. Uh, they got a bunch of really good sponsors uh, involved in this um, particular tournament. Um, but for more information and registration, you guys can go to uh, Beach and Board Fest backslash boards backslash fishing dot com. I would imagine it doesn't say that, but that's what it, that's what's given me here on the poster. Thirty day, uh, thirty dollar pre registration, thirty five dollars day of the tournament, limited to one hundred and twenty five anglers. Um, this is uh, there's uh, twelve hundred dollars in cash and raffle prizes, catch photo and release style tournament. Um, doesn't really tell me what the species are, but we're going to have um, we're going to have those folks on the show next week. We're putting this tournament together, and uh, we'll talk to them, pick their brains a little bit more about that. Um, also, too, I wanted to reiterate at this point in the show that we have um, 
once I find it. I'm looking for my message from Mike Kaneen. Uh Mike Kaneen, where are you at? Uh, the Fly Fishing Film Tour is uh, is coming. Fly Fishing Film Tour is going to be located at the Premier Theaters Oaks 10, Sunday, February the 25th, down in Melbourne, Florida. Uh, if you guys would like to attend that and have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding that, feel free to reach out to Mike Kaneen on Facebook. Uh, you could hit up Harry Goods Outdoor Shop. They're going to be selling tickets. Um, the money that is raised from this film tour goes to English for Conservation, uh, which is a 501c3. Uh, and uh, English for Conservation is a great, great group of folks who uh, truly take the time to try to educate and empower um, the future generations of, of anglers here in the Space Coast. Uh, doors open at 3.40 p.m. Show starts at 4 sharp. Tickets will be 25 bucks in advance, uh, on lo- on advance online and locally, and then there'll be $30 at the door if you don't grab them in time, uh, if they're available at that point. These film, sh- these film tours tend to sell out pretty quick, so if, if you were interested in watching some of the most awesome uh, fly fishing films put together last year or for this year, um, I would highly recommend that you try and do that. As a extra benefit, your ticket stub will uh, be good for a complimentary beer at the Hemingways uh, after the event, as well as a 20% discount at Harry Goods Outdoor Shop. So if you have some stuff you'd like to buy, uh, pick up extra gear or whatever like that, that'd be, I mean, 20, 20% is 20%. It's pretty awesome. Um, definitely appreciate uh, Richard down there at Harry Goods putting that together along with Mike Kinnean. Um Other info, if you have any other uh, comments, questions, or concerns related to that, feel free to get a hold of Mike Kinnean at mike at anglersforconservation.org. There you go. James, you've been quiet. I know you went to the fly fishing, uh, the fly fishing show in Atlanta. I did. Any, anything cool to report? Uh, I got to talk to the guys from Clutch, Lee, and then the COO, what's his name? You're asking me or are you telling me? I'm asking you. Oh, I have no idea. I can't remember his name. Nice guy. I, um, I baked some muffins for them and for the guys from the Fish Hawk because the food there is marginal and, you know, Nothing better than something home baked. So I made them some blueberry muffins. They were all stoked because they hadn't had lunch. Neither had the fish hawk guys. Um, picked up a seven weight clutch. Looking forward to using said seven weight clutch from Mr. Lee. Talked to them for a good long time. Went down and checked out that real company mm-hmm. that you were uh, talking about. Nice real. Yeah, Light, well done. Yeah, Sigler. Light real, well done. Um, tolerances were in good shape. All the edges had been taken off, so there weren't no, no really sharp edges. Anywhere you'd get your fingers caught up, there weren't any sharp edges. Um, I like the fact that the spool was still a smooth spool where you attach the backing. You know, Nautilus, when they went to the NV, kind of sharp edges on that spool. It's ported. Their, yeah. school, their spool yeah. is not overly ported. The drag 
is real strong. They said over 30 pounds. I'm like, if you can't do it with 30 pounds of drag, just, you know, don't even try. Um, so the fish hawk is actually going to carry that reel. They had a picture on their Facebook page that they're going to start carrying that reel in the shop. I will not be buying one of those reels because they're like 1500 bucks. Um, and sure, you could buy a $1,500 reel and then get one of those new Loomis um, rods that are 1500 bucks and no, I won't be doing that. But it is it is a nice, it is a well put together, um, nicely done uh, piece of equipment. The drag is real interesting. That lever, I don't know about the lever. Um, I got mixed mixed feelings about that lever. Might be a good thing. You might be able just to change drag, you know, with a fingertip instead of having to reach around and grab a small round drag knob. You might be able just to fingertip. Yeah. It. Um, yeah. Now, if you were, you know, if you were a real serious blue water kind of person and went for giant trevelis and, you know, spent a lot of time chasing sailfish and big stuff in blue water, tuna sails, small marlin, GTs, makos, stuff like that, you know, I think that would be a really interesting reel to have for, to do for that. Um. But no, they did a they did a nice job on that reel. It was surprisingly light for the amount of hardware. You know, that drag lever is somewhat large. Um, right. It was surprisingly light. Um, hang on, hang on, hang on one second. Hang on one second. Hang on one second. Yep. <laughs> Alex, it, yeah. it's just him. <laughs> we love Jim. Jim, you're crackling oh, yeah. to me today. <laughs> Emma? Yeah, very bad, That's but it's good. all right. You want me to call and hang back in? Call up and hang, call, hang up and call back in? I don't, I don't know if it'll make a difference. But what, what else did you see? Um, Hog Island Boat Works has a boat that is V-Haul. Looked to be about 16 feet long. It had it rigged out for fly fishing. It's plastic. It's not kayak type plastic. Had a 40 on it on the back. Huh. Um, had a big front casting deck. Now Hog Island started off making drift boats out west. That's that's where they started off. Um, and it had a big casting deck on the front. It had a smaller deck on the back. It, they had a tiller 40 on it. It looked to be 16 feet, maybe 17, nice and wide. But the inner and outer hull are both plastic. I'm assuming they got foam in between, you know, for flotation. Full motor mm-hmm. on it. Um, there's some guy down in Apalachicola who uses one to guide out of, I guess, because you can, you know, it's plastic. You run on oysters. It's no big deal. Um I thought that was a very interesting boat. I don't know what the tolerances for heat are in the summer on that boat. It was kind of a tannish brown, a little bit on the darker side. I don't know what colors it comes in, but, you know, if you fish around heavy oysters or you fish, up, you know, around a lot of rocks, things that have bad impact or bad effect on fiberglass, I thought that was a very interesting boat, real open concept. And like I said, they started making drift boats out west, and then they got into 
traditional V-Haul um, fishing boats. So that what, might be a cool thing to look at. Hog Island Boat Works, I believe it is. Okay, Hog Island. I think it's Hog Island. I read about them a couple of years ago, and I was wondering if they were going to stay in the V-Haul. You know, drift boats and V-Haul boats are very different, right? Right. And I was wondering if they were going to stay in that business, but they look like they have. It's not too horribly expensive. But, you know, like all these North Georgia mountain lakes or North Georgia lakes, you know, they all got rocks, big granite, jagged rocks in them. Something that if you hit it with fiberglass, it would be a bad day. Uh, if you weren't paying attention. So I think this thing would bounce off a rock just fine. Or if you ran up on some oysters. Like well, I don't know if I'd here. want to take it down. Did you find it? Yeah, this this it's saying it's a drift boat, but this has got to be it. But uh, it it it's literally rigged up like a uh, like a yeah. They got they got ones with fully decked out with pulling platforms and everything, with bigger mm-hmm. tillers on them, forty horse tillers or so. Yeah, this is a pretty slick one actually. It's got a platform up front with a cage, platform on the back, micro power pole. Got his token Yetis up there too. Got to have a Yeti or three. Mm-hmm. So yeah, custom. Oh yeah, I see it. Oh, hold on. Interesting, interesting, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, there's a shallow water marina. 16. Yep. There's a place up in Georgia, up on north the north end of Lake Lanier, that obviously is selling them now because the people who had one. And, of course, um, Hell's Bay was there, but, you know, who, who I'm not going to pay 80000 for a flat boat or 60000 or 50000 whatever they are now. Thanks for bringing that up because I'm actually <clears> – there <throat> was a post today uh, about a 22-foot bay boat on one of the Facebook pages that I follow. And the price that was listed was like $110,000. Listen. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what has transpired over the last 15 years or so. But they are making the kayak fishing industry all the more... Um, all the more money, but all the more uh, doable for people when they're pricing themselves completely out of the average person's budget. Like, if I'm going to spend $110,000 on a boat, it's not going to be a 22-foot-long bay boat. I'm gonna buy uh-huh. somebody's old egg. I'm gonna buy somebody's old Egg Harbor, or small Hatteras, or something of the sort, or even a, a bigger center console. Hell, when we bought our center console, I had a 26 foot Stamus, uh, the tarpon. It's a 26 foot Stamus tarpon center console. I had twin 150 Yamaha OX 66s on it. I paid thirty four thousand dollars for that boat, mm-hmm. and neither one of the motors had ever been registered. So when, when we registered and we got the full factory warranty on the motors as well, and I paid $34,000 mm-hmm. for that boat. And I would have had zero problem taking that boat to any place 
Bahamas, otherwise. Middle ground, anywhere. No problem. 168 gallons of fuel it held. It was a beast. 110 grand for a freaking bay boat is insane. Absolutely insane. Listen, $50,000 for a flats boat is insane. I don't care whose name is on the side of it. It makes absolutely no sense. I get it that there's people that will buy it because of the name recognition and everything else. And in a lot of cases, it's a status symbol. And I'm not doing, I'm not having this conversation because of my affiliation with my good friend, John Glasser. I'm just saying that it's, it's out of control, out of control, out of control. It doesn't make any sense to me how or why anything that's 17 foot correction, 18 foot and smaller should cost anywhere near $50,000. I promise you there's yeah, nothing yeah. going into others. Oh, there's just flat out. There's nothing going into any of those boats that warrants that value besides the, the inflated value that's been created in the marketplace. And that's why, like, even in kayaking, like, look at, look at where, we've, look where we've gone in a short time in, kayak, in the kayak world. We went from a time where a $1,500 kayak was like, are, are they crazy? Like, who's going to mm. buy a $1,500 kayak? To the average price of a pedal-driven kayak is probably somewhere in that $22 to $2,300 range. And I'm saying average price because every, all the manufacturers now have one. I saw New Canoe is going to offer a, uh, a pedal system as well next year. Um, but I, 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 don't, I don't understand why across the board in fishing, across the board, no matter if it's kayak-based, paddleboard-based, uh, skiff-based, why the price continues to just skyrocket. Like, at some point, they've got to run out of people. I mean, they've got to run out of that, that demographic mm-hmm. that's willing to spend the money, but I guess not. I guess not. Well, look at it like this. The top-end fly rod not too many years ago was about a $500 rod. Yeah, Shimano sure. has that new Asquith, and it's just a graphite rod. It's not a hang, you know, it's not a custom-made split-cane bamboo rod that took a guy two or three weeks to build. It's just a graphite rod that's more or less mass-produced. It's 1500 bucks. For So the top-end market in that segment has tripled. And not that many years. You know, conventional tackle is the same. You know, you can get some. Yeah, good, yeah absolutely. You can get you can get some good prices on conventional tackle, but you know, how much is a Stella spinning reel? Yeah, it's anywhere from five to seven, eight, nine hundred dollars, depending upon the size. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I don't. I mean, you know, I don't know. You know, it's 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 interesting. Fun to watch it happen because I know I'll never be a customer. I'll be a fan, like the like like the like the Siegler uh, Siegler fly reel. Mm. I'll be a fan of what that guy's doing, 
but I'm never going to be able to afford to buy a fly reel that costs over a thousand dollars. And even if I could, I don't know that I, I don't know that I, I would do it. I just, it's a lot of money. <laughs> it's yeah. a lot of money. For something that could end money. up in the bottom of the ocean. Very, yeah. very true. Or end up in somebody else's hands. <laughs> that's a lot, yeah. that's a lot you know? of money. That's a lot of money to spend to not catch fish. That's right. Wow. But you look stylish while you're doing it. Don't ever forget that, Alex. I'll tell you, you what, you man. Know what? That... Checking out that that boat. That boat is freaking cool. Like, is really that boat cool. not cool or what? If you lived like, in Apalachicola or anywhere from Apalachicola over to St. Mark's, where you just nothing but oysters, and y'all know what it, oysters will do to a fiberglass boat. It's a uh, you know what I mean. It's a pretty slick little rig. It's rated What's for the price on it? just. It's, it, I didn't see a price. That was the one thing I didn't see, but it's rated the for. Uh, five grand. It's rated for. Uh, it's rated for five people or twelve, uh, twelve hundred and fifty pounds, up to forty Holy horsepower. Crap. Sixteen foot four inches, fifty four inch. Uh, Bottom width, and then the beam seventy eight inches. So, pretty neat little rig. Uh, it's it's set up to be. It looks like a conversion, more of a skiff like uh, drift boat, you know, with the oars. So it's got full oar locks yeah. on the sides of it. So you could literally pop your little twenty. It, it says it planes with a fifteen, and. Uh, you can uh, get about 23 to 25 mile an hour out of a 25 horse, 30 out of a 30 horse. Um, so, uh, yeah, that'd, that'd, be a, that'd be a cool little boat. Too bad the no motors on it and still the place to be. That'd be an awesome yeah, uh, okay. It's 480 pounds. Huh. I think I yeah. heard a podcast with those people who build that boat, and I think that mold – they use to do that thing is like huge because it's you know it's a oh, plastic it, it mold. It has to be. Yeah, it has yeah, to be. It's like massive. one of the biggest ones in the world. But you know it's huh. not overly heavy. It's you, know, you know you bounce. Yeah, if you bounce that thing off a rock. That's you know one of my concerns here in North Georgia is most of boat ramps. You know, there's that chunk of granite around the boat ramps, and then there's natural rocks too. You know, granite naturally, uh, natural granite formations, and that stuff is jagged and catchy. You just don't want to hit a boat off of it or a lower unit. I dig the anchor release that's on it too. That's, you don't use anchors very often, sick here, but little rig. It is. It's a really cool little boat. Thanks for telling us about that. We're, you know what? I might reach out yep. to them, Alex, and see if they want to come on the show. So hold on. Here we go. Um, well, at least this one, this looks like one for sale. Hold on. It looks, it, I wonder if it's a, this one's got a, so basically it looks like this is, uh, um, looks like somebody had it rigged up basically. Trolling motor, the whole nine yards with a 50 horse on it. Asking uh, thirteen hundred or thirteen thousand, our best offer. So, 
So a fifty. And it's a, a fifty, 50 horse with running a 50 about fifty on it. With a fifty. Wow. With a twenty sixteen fifty, it looks like a brand new boat. That was the only one that, so, I, that gave me any any kind of pricing. So, Alex, what's a fifty run? Is that about sixty five hundred bucks now? Six thousand bucks now? Yeah, somewhere in that range, give or take. And how much is how much are they asking for that boat? <laughs> they were asking thirteen for that boat. So that was a, basically so you, a brand new engine. So you're talking about five yeah. or six for the hull? They got a trail motor. Yeah. So, so, so you're talking about Hobie about guy. the cost about the cost of a Hobie PA seventeen. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. That's that's pretty uh it says skinny saltwater sixteen with a twenty horse Merc and fisherman boat is drawing two inches. <laughs> See that's insane. Which makes sense. It's got a lot of surface area on the bottom, so I mean it's it's a wide looking little yeah. platform. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I think I might. Yeah, I thought it was yeah. a cool boat. I mean, it's not it's not a kayak, but it's made of plastic, so we can kind of like yep. pretend, right? We could just say, "Hey, you want to come on our podcast?" I mean, we don't we don't personally only fish out of kayaks, but it would be cool to to talk to somebody about this little rig. Yeah. Oh, here you go. Here's one rigged up with a uh, with a jet drive outboard. Oh. I wonder what that would run. I wonder what that would run Shut in. The- Shut the front door. I think I'll run in a puddle. You could take that anywhere. You could take that anywhere, man. Dude, that would be a Go ahead. Can you imagine that? That You go along and there's a mud flat and you just shoot across a mud flat. That would be a fun boat to take to uh, Chukaluski or the Glades. Yep. Neat, huh? Neat. This is a really uh really cool looking little boat. That's interesting. Who'd have thunk? Yep. Yep. Right so they had two boat. casting ponds. Yeah. They had two casting ponds there. Um bunch of fly time folks, some fly time materials. Uh Sage had a big presence. Um Oh, uh, here you go. Here you go. Sage this. I got some sage <laughs> for you. <laughs> okay. Um <laughs> uh, Hog, uh Hog Island SW16 skiff uh green tan camo hauls in, hauls in stock 5950 5950 so that probably yeah probably be 5950 for the bear haul Interesting. You know what else you could do with that boat? Especially have that Throw it in the back of your truck. You could duck hunt out of that boat. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, you could camel out the top with some stuff. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Some palm frond. Yep. You know, uh, speaking of tiny skiffs or small skiffs and interesting skiffs, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and plug it anyway because I don't care. The uh, Rightwater 12 is available and is prepared and ready for demo writing. So... Anybody listening wants to uh, try out the Right Water 12 with a grab bar and a I think it's still a 15 is what we're going to run with it with a grab bar. Uh, let me know. <clears throat> let me know. 
because it's a fun, man, I'm telling you, it's a fun little boat. It looks ridiculous when you first see it, but, and you put it in the water and you run it and it's like, you feel, you still have that feeling of running like a little John boat or something like that. But once you get to where you're going, it pulls like a freaking dream and two people can fish from it with no problem. Um, and hull only is 2500 bucks. So That's a cool little go. boat. I think we're going back go. to the pickup. I'm really right. proud of it. What's that? That'll go in the back of a pickup. Oh, heck yeah. Well, it's only 100 pounds. Um, yeah, we, see? You can't I'm, beat that. I'm really, really proud of it. And, you know, I haven't done a lot. I haven't talked much about it on the show here because this is Kayak Fishing Radio. It's a micro skiff. But... Um, and I haven't put up a lot about it on Facebook recently because we've been trying to dial a few things in and um, we're where we want it to be now. I mean, it's, it, it is going to be what it is going to be. Um, we're not going to do anything else to it as far as fixing it or, or changing it or doing anything because, honestly, we feel like there's nothing left to fix. Um, the We are, however talking about possibly stretching it out and making one at either 14 foot or just shy of uh, of 15 and a half feet, which would be interesting because we also offered the 16, the Glasser 16.8, and the Glasser 16.8 is a true skiff. It's not a micro. It's not a small boat. It's not something you're going to pick up and put in the back of your pickup truck. The 16.8 is a legitimate fishing machine, but we wanted something to kind of be a little bit longer than the 12 for the guys that feel like the 12 is too small. But I'm telling you, I fished the 12 a, a bunch of times now, and I fished it a few times with some friends, and the few times I fished it with friends, um, standing on a cooler on the back deck, having a, an angler on the front didn't bother me in the least bit, not in the least bit. Uh, it's not tippy. It's super stable, um, and, it, and it's just a fun boat to play with. So if anybody out there listening in, in, in Internet land would like to demo said uh, Rightwater 12, feel free to get a hold of me. Um, and the beauty of it is it's plug-and-play, so uh, 100% customizable, colors included. Um, if you want C-Deck on it, no problem. We've got the hookup with our boys over at Castaway Customs. Um, you want to put a motor on it, we could do that too. If you don't want to put a motor on it, you only want to buy a bare hull and stick a motor on it yourself, we could do that. If you want to take it to no motor zone and pull it all day, it'll it, it'll get that job done for sure. So a uh, little plug there. It's Glasser Boatworks is, uh, is, the, is the company who's building the boat. We call it the Rightwater 12. Um, yeah, it's pretty damn slick. So... In fact, John, John and uh, Turtle, who are John's the owner of Glasser Boatworks, John Glasser, and Turtle is his employee. Um, I don't know why they call him Turtle. I never really asked him, um, but it fits it fits him pretty well. Uh, are going to be going over to the Crystal River, um, IFFFFFFFFF, whatever Fly Fishing Association show uh, this upcoming weekend. And they'll have the 16.8 over there, and they'll have two Brightwater 12s, one with a front casting platform or front casting deck and, uh, and a back deck, and one with a back deck center bench front deck for you guys to look at if any of you guys are going to the fly fishing show in Crystal River. There you go. 
There you go. Oh, and so uh, check this out. So Mark, our, our buddy from the old Bahama Bay Resort, uh, has picked up his second center, uh, small center console that he's going to send over to the old Bahama Bay Resort for him to do rentals. He's going to rent a couple of boats over there. And both of them are big enough inside to mothership kayaks on. Hmm. Hmm. So I don't know about you guys, but the idea of throwing a couple of kayaks or paddle boards into a, into a center console and running them to a far off reach of a giant bonefish flat in the middle of the Bahamas doesn't sound like it would suck. I think it's got potential. <laughs> what 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 are your thoughts, Alex? Uh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So there's that. Um and then also two folks with a with uh, a pocket we, with a pocket full of shrimp ready to go. <laughs> They are silver catfish that swim very fast. No, I know, James, thank you, that they are silver catfish that swim really fast. I, I'm i not sticking a shrimp in one's face. <laughs> not not right away. <laughs> like, the first one I catch is, cannot be caught that way. I just, I don't care. I would, I, everything about the stupid uh, silver catfish that swims really fast will go out the window for me if, I hurl a chunk of dead shrimp out on a flat and watch one pick it up and swim off with it. Like, I know I'm putting this fish on a pedestal that he probably doesn't really. Dude, they wouldn't just pick it up and swim off with it, bro. They'd 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 attack it. There'd be thirty of them going after. (laughs) And when they swim off, they swim off really fast. Whatever. It'd be like the catfish. I, I, it'd be like the catfish right out back of Applebee's on the water, man. That eat the French fries all day. You still need to do that. Similar. Chuck, have Don't you caught a bonefish on conventional? I haven't caught a bonefish at all. Really? I've never caught a bonefish. Nope. Never once hmm. have I ever caught a bonefish. My wife caught a bonefish. Well, that's cool. Your your she wife's probably been. Too. You, ouch, <laughs> ouch. She said a big fat one too. I met your wife. She's, only a, she's a lovely lady. She's a lovely lady, the brown and trout I'm sure that she has. What? Said so the brown trout was only 24 inches long, so you know. <sighs> we I got thick skin. I'm good. Yeah, whatever. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> Get off my case. Um, what was I going to say now? Damn it. Now you made me forget what I was going to say. It probably wasn't very important. Oh, no, it was kind of important. Uh, I am going to reach into a hat and pick out a date. And we are going to attempt to fill as many as eight spots to go to Los Buzos, Panama. To go and stay down in Cabital, 
on the coast at Los Buzos Resort and target whatever's around, hopefully some billfish and roosters and other stuff. But the roosters never leave. The snappers never leave. Um, but in April, May, like I think it's April, May, and June, from what I understand, the bill fishing down there is really, really good. Everything from giant sailfish to uh, marlin of both species, blue and black. Um, so I'm not sure exactly which month just yet, um, but as soon as I know, I'm going to throw that out there. And we would, I would like very much for the listening audience to join us down in uh, Los Buzos. It should be a good time. It's going to happen at some point. If it doesn't happen during the um, April, May, June time frame, then we'll look deeper into the year towards about when I went, which was in October, um, October, November. So, uh, But either way, um, there will be at some point in 2018 a kayak fishing radio uh, hosted trip to Panama. So if you're interested and you're listening to the podcast, you're listening live right now, if you would like to be put on the short list uh, pending the, the, the time frame and the dates, feel free to get a hold of me and uh, we'll, get you, we'll get you inked in. Again, it's going to be a very limited space. There will be roughly eight spots available for folks to, uh, to jump on board and go. But uh, fear not if you don't want to go to Panama or you just don't think you could do that. Um, there will be other uh, kayak fishing radio-related trips forthcoming, um, including to the Bahamas. So um, look forward to that. And with that being said, I'm pretty much done for the night. I don't know about you guys. You got anything else you want to add, Alex? Uh, nope. James? Why do they process prunes in a facility that also processes wheat? I have an issue with that. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> you used to ask why they process prunes? Prunes. I was trying to buy prunes, some prunes at the grocery store, and on the label it said, Jesus, you're old. This package. <laughs> hey, I have a birthday tomorrow. Get off me. Let me tell you, this is totally related to kayak fishing. Let me tell you something about prunes. Five prunes, 100 calories, tons of potassium. So when you're out on your boat kayak fishing in the sun, paddling, right, you need potassium. So there. I'm not eating prunes. <laughs> Listen. You could crack on me about the the fast swimming silver catfish that swim really really fast, and the and the brown trout that I've never caught that your wife has caught a absolute stud of. But you 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 bring up prunes, like all I can think about when I think of prunes is the little old lady with dentures, that like that's the that's that's her favorite snack. They're nice and soft and. They're tasty prunes, and you want. And your question was, what was your your question was why do they process prunes in the same place they process wheat? 
<laughs> yeah, that's my question. <laughs> I want to know why. I don't know, James. I don't know. I do know one thing. I love you. I love you just like just like a brother from another mother. You are a very special person. <laughs> I have my moments. I don't have anything for that, man. Like, you said that. And the first thing that popped into my head was, uh, I got nothing. <laughs> I wanted to have an answer for you so bad, but I've never, I can honestly say, I've never pondered why they process prunes and wheat in the same place. It seems unnatural. I'm just saying. Seems unnatural. <laughs> oh my god! And on that right, note, there's anyway. a Tesla on the way to. On that note, there's a Tesla <laughs> on the way to Mars right now. Which, which also seems very unnatural, but is is phenomenal. <laughs> oh boy! All right. Well, folks, if you want to go on a charter with Captain Alex, and I highly recommend that you do, especially if you live in the local area and you're trying to learn our somewhat difficult fishery to master, you contact Captain Alex by? Giving me a shout at 321-480-3255 or hit me up at localinescharters.com. Fantastic. Uh, oh, last thing. There was something else I wanted to, to, to talk about real quick. There is a restaurant slash bar located in Titusville, Florida, that is opening its doors up or in its outside bar up to fishing clubs and communities and having – they're open to doing seminars and get-togethers and such like that. So uh, Alex and I have not discussed this. Um, however, we are now. I would like to do – I would like to host a kayak fishing seminar evening at said restaurant, which will yet to be named until we get this all squared away. Um, so if you're interested in your local, uh, you think you might would attend a seminar hosted by Alex and my, Alex and myself, um, maybe a couple other guests, guest speakers as well. Uh, feel free to hit me up. Let me know. And, uh, you know, judging by your participation in this, uh, question. We will uh, go forth and conquer and see if we can make it happen. But it sounds like a great time because it's right on the river. So, I mean, it's got the perfect backdrop. So, there's that. Pretty cool. Anyway, all right then. Go uh, hit up local lines and uh, take a charter with Captain Alex. Again, his phone number is 321-480-3255. James, any parting words besides prunes and wheat? Mm. Go fish. Go fish. Amen. And uh, with that being said, folks, take a kid fish and they are the future of our sport. And if you have any comments, questions, or concerns about the show, you know where to reach us. And we'll talk to you next week. God bless. See you.